Hi, everyone, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 60, Wraps Convergence Takeaways. RQM Plus event speakers share their biggest surprises and learnings. Uh, it's been a while and really excited to be back with you today. I'm Stephen Bernacki, Marketing Principal at RQM Plus, and I'm going to talk just a little bit about RQM Plus to get us started and also introduce today's panelists uh, before we dive into all things Wraps Convergence. So RQM Plus is the leading medtech service provider with the world's largest global team of regulatory and quality experts. Uh, we provide comprehensive regulatory, quality, clinical, and laboratory services, uh, supporting market access throughout the entire product lifecycle for medical devices and diagnostics. Uh, this is our interactive show, RQM Plus Live, that gives you access to our seasoned leaders and experts who answer your questions about industry topics and challenges. So if any of you have questions today, this is a premier opportunity to ask them, uh, and you can do that by typing and submitting your questions in to the questions area of the webinar interface. All right, so on to today's panelists, who of course are, were all speakers at this year's Wraps Convergence in Phoenix, Arizona. And first up is Jay Cuddy, Vice President of Intelligence and Innovation. Jay joined RQM Plus in February of 2021, coming from BSI, where he spent seven years in CE marking technical and clinical leadership roles, uh, with specific expertise in cardiovascular product development. Jay has over 19 years experience in R&D and medical devices, spanning new product development, biomechanics, biomaterials, regulatory affairs, and clinical evaluations. Next, we have Carlos Galamba, Vice President of IVD Intelligence and Innovation. Carlos joined RQM Plus in September 2021 after seven years at BSI, where he was responsible for managing, coaching, and developing a global team of IVD technical experts in his role as technical team manager. He was BSI's first internal clinician under the IVDR and had oversight of most performance evaluations in that role as well. Carlos is also an expert for the EU Commission. Uh, you may have noticed by now, but Carlos's camera went out on him uh, just this morning, but please know he's here. He's more than just a black box today, and it's an opportunity to listen extra carefully to what Carlos is saying. Uh, third is Celeste Maxim, Chief of Staff for Clinical and Post-Market Services. Uh, Celeste has extensive experience with clinical studies and post-market surveillance, and at RQM Plus, her focus is on developing strategies to meet the EU MDR requirements for clinical and post-market surveillance compliance documentation. Uh, next up is Anika Freeman. Anika is Principal Consultant at RQM Plus. She has a long award-winning history with CDRH, including a role as Senior Consumer Safety Officer, where she managed division operations for many years, uh, and she brings more than 10 years of FDA experience in total to RQM Plus. And lastly, our special moderator today, who you've seen countless times on RQM Plus Live, is Nancy Morrison, Executive Director of Regulatory and Quality Consulting Services. Nancy has our RAC certifications for the US and EU. Uh, she leads our MDR and IVDR leadership councils, and she has over 30 years of experience in regulatory leadership and management roles. Uh, and with all that said, Nancy, you are free to get us started. Go ahead. Thanks, Steve. Well, RAPS was back in person this year for the first time since COVID started with 1,700 attendees. Um, I'm excited to be here with our speakers. Um, so they can share what they uh, learned from the show and what they spoke about. So maybe let's just get started with a, a round table. We'll give you 30 seconds, because I know you could speak for an hour on what your topics were, um, what you presented and any key takeaway from that session. Um, so we'll start with Carlos. Why don't you go Hello. first, Carlos? Hello. Hi, Nancy. Hi, everyone. Sorry. Apologies for not uh, for that I'm not a camera, but uh, my camera just didn't work. Didn't want to work before this meeting. So, but yeah. So I did, I gave a presentation uh, as part of a panel of, of, of speakers. So that was together with Tufsud, uh, with DNV, so some of the notified bodies and consultants as well. 
so what one of the things we've realized was that uh, that panel uh, shared one thing in common uh, and that was we were all ex-notified body um, um, uh, personnel so we all worked at, at notified bodies or we're currently working at notified bodies so the session really was a, a debate on the lessons learned um, from the in implementation of the the regulations both uh, eu ibdr and eu mdr i gave um, a presentation on clinical evidence as being one of the most important aspects of the the ibdr and really one of the key things that came out of that, se that session was that clinical evidence for ibds is really one of the biggest gaps that we're seeing and that notified bodies are seeing with 40% um, of all findings being on clinical evidence alone. So that, that was just a brief overview of what I presented. I don't know who wants to go next. <laughs> we'll go with Jay. Jay, do you want to jump in here? Sure, no problem. Carlos, even though we can't see you, man, you look perfectly handsome. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thank so, you, <laughs> So yeah, we were at RAPS last week. Um, it was it was a really good conference, and um, it was it was a wonderful experience. And it started in a strange way, but it ended up great. And I'll tell you why it was strange because you know my my abstracts for equivalence and quantitative benefit risk analysis were accepted, and then something happened in the black box, and I was told, okay, you can't do any of that, and you can't even participate in in those panels, but you can present on PMCF studies. And you know what? Actually, I was really, really excited about that too, because at RQM Plus, and I'm very proud to say this, but I'm really excited as well. We've had some really significant successes in some of these PMCF studies, right? We've we've been able to um, get some really good data for and mostly legacy devices, transient use devices, short-term use devices. And the one that I'm most excited about is um, is actually a ureter stent, which is an implant, right? And we got data in excess of 12 months for an implant, that was a big win for us. So I was excited. And uh, the presentation was about traversing the path from a CER to an effective PMCF study, right? You can, you can have certain objectives coming out of the CER, but some of those need to be tweaked to make an effective PMCF study. Some of the strategies that you can employ to, um, you know, effectively conduct a PMCF study and gathers data of sufficient quantity and quality and some of the statistical approaches around it. Um, and, and the whole thing was rather well received. I think we got a lot of questions from manufacturers in terms of some of the very specifics around the conduct of the study and the data analysis. And of course, what if the data that you collect, you know, doesn't meet the requirements? What is the impact on certification? So we had some really good um, discussion following the presentation in case of some of the if-then scenarios and what-if scenarios, right? Some of those have been manifested and we were able to share our experience on the same. So overall, very positive experience. Um, some good takeaways that we will discuss very shortly, but that's it for me, Nancy. Thank you. Thanks. And Celeste, do you want to piggyback on that one? Sure. And actually a fairly similar topic. So I presented also on strategies for determining like what's the most appropriate PMCF activity. And it was, um, we did like a, a, a life cycle approach uh, with two other consultants. So the three of us presented together and it was very fun. Um, we had a case study uh, a device where we looked at the clinical evidence for that product. And then from that clinical evidence, picked an appropriate PMCF study. And then from there discussed the risk management and you know expected lifetime, how to determine that uh, either from post-market data, PMCF data, 
um, it was also well received and we got a lot of good questions. Um, so I think a, a big success. That's great. And Anika, do you wanna fill us in on your session? Yeah, so I was happy to have the opportunity to present for a solution circle, which is essentially an informal setting. Everybody just gathers around a table and we discuss a topic. And my topic in particular was eStar and how to efficiently prepare that. Um, the eStar template is a new type of electronic submission that FDA is going to eventually require sponsors to use for um, all types of pre-market submissions. But right now it's for 510Ks and de novos. So what I did was basically answer a lot of questions. There was a lot of interest in the topic and it was really good. It was a lot of energy. Um, people had very interesting questions about, you know, how do I prepare my attachments? What's the best strategy for compiling the information, editing, and finalizing the document? So I enjoyed the discussion. It was really good. Lancy, and I, I can vouch for that because Anika's uh, solution circle was actually one of the most attended ones. So there were a lot of people asking questions. It's really, really good to see. That's great. And I know we've done several of those submissions now. <laughs> It, it's an interesting process. Very interesting, to say the least. That's great. So this being the first year back in person after being virtual for the last couple of years or hybrid last year, what did you observe about this this conference? And Celeste, maybe you want to talk about the attendees? Sure. I mean, from my perspective, and first of all, it was my first wrap, so it was very fun. Um, and. I really enjoyed getting to meet the um, attendees from Notified Bodies. That was incredibly helpful and it seemed like every Notified Body represented, uh, especially um, the, the sessions where they focused on aligning uh, in their approach and their perspective of how the reviews are going. Um, I think that that was incredibly uh, well received. That's great. Jay, you want to comment? Did you see also the same notified body or manufacturers? Yeah, I did. I did. At least, I mean, to Celeste's point, right? All of the top notified bodies were well represented. Uh, we got to hear from all of them, and you know, I've had many one-on-one -on -one conversations with, with with some of them, especially the ones from BSI. Um, all very fruitful. When it when it came to the sessions, it really depended. You know, sometimes you'd get most of the questions coming from consultants. And that makes sense because they've probably seen a wide variety of um, reviews or wide variety of submissions. But there were there were a significant number of manufacturers as well. Not so much in the exhibit hall, but just going by the number of people that I was able to meet and talk with and got questions from, and and, and in general had conversations with. I think um, I wouldn't say equal, but there was a good representation from manufacturers. Um, definitely some of the bigger ones had a more stronger representation, but overall, I think it was well represented, especially, especially, you know, coming out of COVID times, getting back into face-to-face. -face. I think that's what people were most excited about and uh, made for some interesting conversations. That's great. That's it. I think also just in terms of size. So I was at this is this was my first wraps uh, in the US, but I was at, um, at wraps uh, in Europe, I think April. Uh, this year, whatever that it was, I think April, March timeframe, um, and uh, and yes, it was a lot bigger than than Raps in Europe. I think they had over 1,700 attend attendees um, in, in Phoenix. Uh, I, I think Europe was about 500, 600, if I'm not mistaken. So it felt definitely a lot uh, a lot bigger than the one we we had in Europe. So 
really really good to see um really good network i think you know i agree with jay was a good split between consulting consultants manufacturers um from my in my talks for example i think a lot of the a lot of the the questions asked were from uh, manufacturers directly so one of the things that i didn't say uh, at the beginning is that i also presented a solution circle with celeste so where we we did a bit of an introduction to uh, intended purpose statements under the the ivdr uh, so the way we approached it was we we divided uh, the group um into two uh, different groups so uh, those ivdr professionals that had experience doing ivdr submissions and those that have never submitted to a notified body and were working on their intended purpose statements for the for the very first time so yeah we got those those two groups uh, sharing uh, lessons learned with each other so that was really interesting um so from the point of view of those that have already gone through the the ivdr one of the key learnings was really how important the intended purpose is in a notified body application uh, and how it impacts um, the relationship with your notified body how it impacts the performance evaluation assessment of your technical documentation uh, and all of the challenges that manufacturers have to share in terms of having to update intended purposes for legacy devices and how, and how that has a knock-on effect on global registrations so that was quite quite interesting to have two uh, levels of experience uh, discussing the intended purpose under the the regulation I think that's one of the things I really enjoy about RAPS. You know, in 1700, it sounds like a lot, but that's actually lower than it was probably pre-COVID. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see next year if that continues to grow and now that people have more time to plan for that. Okay, so what was the most unexpected thing or key learning you took away from the conference? Shall I go first? Yes, you shall. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't quite say unexpected because in some ways this was expected, but it's definitely a key learning. I think I've, I've got a couple in my mind that I want to share. But, you know, as usual, everybody gangs up and says, notified body, you're the problem, right? And the reason I'm saying as usual, because this, is, this has been happening since time immemorial, right? The PIP scandal, um, uh, the metal on metal hip scandal, all of that, you know, Manufacturers knew there were issues, right? Uh, company authorities knew there were issues, but the notified body is the certificate issuing body and all fingers get pointed at them. And then we know what happened, right? You've got UAVs. <laughs> Eventually we had the Dutch investigative journalists and then we got, you know, years down the line, we got the MDR and here we are, right? Same story. Um, everybody, you know, there was a session that was titled light at the end of tunnel question mark. It basically ended with a question mark itself, but with, you know, not without more finger pointing of the notified body. But what was really interesting, um, and I'm glad they did this, you know, there were people, the head of the notified body from BSI and a couple of other people from the same notified body stood up and, and actually showed very detailed slides showing that the number of employees directly employed by the notified body right, has increased from about 700 in 2010 to 4,000 plus as we stand today, right, 4,000 plus. So they, they've they done a lot in terms of recruiting more resources to help with the enormous mountain that they're supposed to climb. And, and they posed a question back at manufacturers saying, look, how many resources have you added to help with the MDR slash IVDR issue, 
right? Because whenever we talk to you, you constantly keep saying we have a resource crunch. We're all fishing from the same pond, right? We're all fishing for the same talent. And you know what? It's actually more difficult for the notified body to hire effectively because they tend to pay lesser than manufacturers, right? So given all of those constraints and the significant you know, learning curve and the training that reviewers need to go through, notified bodies have upped their staff very, very significantly is the message that they, that they deliver to industry. Now, um, and they said, yeah, we recognize there is a resource uh, constraint all across the board from the, from the commission to the notified body to the manufacturers, but we've known about the MDR for the last five years. So we should have been planning. Instead, what we see manufacturers doing is they're still trying to ring changes under the MDD realm and you know, scouring through all of those flowcharts to find a loophole to say that these changes are non-significant. It, it's, it's really happening. I see at least two on a weekly basis. So they're obviously seeing a lot more. So they're saying, that's not in the spirit of where we need to be. You really need to be planning your transition realistically. Don't come to us in January 2024 because it's going to be impossible to complete a review by then. So the message was loud and clear. Please plan effectively, get your submissions in time because it is taking in excess of a year to get these certificates issued. And let's not just, you know, stick with the notified bodies are the time and the re our time and resource constrained and can't get to it effectively. Because what they also showed is that currently we have 32 notified bodies that are designated, at least for the MDR, and another 24 um, in the process of designation. This is significantly more than what we had initially expected. We initially expected about 35 to 40 notified bodies to be designated overall for MDR. But now we know that number is going to be significantly higher. So the ball is going to come back to the manufacturer's court in terms of, you know, planning more effectively. There are a couple of items, other items that I want to get to, but I'll let somebody else chime in. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some manufacturers that are going, but I've been hiring right now, screaming at you. <laughs> so. Well, and, and you know what? I think that's where we can help. We, you know, just with our experience and resource pool, we can help there too, so. Yeah, Absolutely. Celeste, do you wanna, what was your key yeah. takeaway? Um, probably that, you know, a less is more approach is going to expedite the review process. So I think like throughout the last few years, um, we've seen a lot of varied feedback and requests for more um, thorough CERs, right? And so CERs maybe grew in length. We saw, you know, some variability in SSDPs. And um, I think the overwhelming feedback from all notified bodies was, meet the requirements in as few pages as possible, but the harder you make it for us to review, the longer it's going to take. If you can say some, if you can do a SSCP in, you know, six to 10 pages, why is it taking you 15 to, I think one of the higher numbers was 100, 100 plus, right? And, and how is that a summary, right? And same for CERs, it was um, meet the requirements in a very, a concise way and really be focused on removing duplication in documents. And so I think that that actually is very helpful in light of everything Jay was saying about um, resources and planning better is maybe it's time now that we're several years into this transition of looking at templates process and really seeing what can be done to streamline to make it easier on reviewers. So I thought that that was very helpful. 
Yeah, that's a very good point, Celeste. And I would also, you know, even for the IVDR as well. So from my experience as a, a notified body reviewer, so I've I've looked at hundreds of of tech files, and really when you when you receive a technical file, one of the key things you're looking for is that that file is easy to navigate. And then I think there's um sometimes um manufacturers and the folks that put technical files together think that they need to write a scientific um, publication. And that's not what a PER, for example, is. It's not a scientific publication. It is a regulatory document that's based on scientific evidence, which is very different. So really think about the, the, the purpose as to why you're writing a scientific validity report, as to why you're writing a performance evaluation report. It's for the uh, notified body reviewer to be able to make an assessment of it. So you need to make the notified body reviewer life as easy as you can, because typically your notified body will quote you for, let's say, uh, to do a review of five to seven days to do a review of a low risk type device. And that's the time they've got available and that they plan from a resourcing perspective to review your file. So if they then, uh, if you're then submitting a PER with over 200 pages, for example, it's going to take them a lot longer to get through because sometimes it's very difficult to find and try to exactly point to where is the information that I need from this PER to be able to complete my assessment as a notified body reviewer. So then if you can make your the, the notified body life uh, easier by having a more condensed version and summaries like Celeste talked about, you'll have a, a much easier journey with your notified body. It will also um, set them in the right tone because you know the number of days that they've planned for a particular review is actually going to be met. It won't impact uh, uh, their resources as much as they anticipated. So there's lots of benefits in being uh, brief. So I agree, less is more in these cases, as long as the information meets the requirements of the, the regulation. Yeah. And Nico, we've been talking a lot about EU. <laughs> Any key takeaways on the US side of things? Yes, so I was particularly interested in updates for US regulations since a majority of the work I do and the consulting that we do for our clients and our group is for you know manufacturers who are trying to bring products to market in the US. So I attended the Health Authority Forum for FDA, and that was a good discussion. Dr. Shuren presented remotely, and he shared his insights on his expectations for Medufa 5. As some of you may know, it's not quite passed yet by Congress, but we're waiting. Uh, several people in the audience had questions about what is the contingency plan if nothing happens by that October 1st deadline. And he reassured the audience that, you know, he intends to proceed as business as usual, and they're hopeful that things will be passed in time. Their goal is to, to progress as though Medufa 5 is in place once October 1st hits, and so I hope that that transition goes smoothly and we don't have any hiccups. Also during that talk, there was a presentation by Dr. Doug Kelly, who's the Deputy the Science Director for FDA, and he shared information on what they're proposing to be the TPLC advisory program. He didn't give a ton of extra detail on all that the program entails, but it appears to be a decent resource for sponsors to get additional feedback from FDA and support. So I'm, I'm excited to see more information on how that's gonna unfold and what that means for sponsors long-term. And then I also thought it was interesting that there were some incentives attached to Medufa 5. So if FDA hits certain goals, they get additional money. And so as a consultant, I'm always hopeful that that means, you know, more for reviewers so that they have the resources that they need to help 
get our products cleared as quickly as possible. So we'll see how that goes. And then one thing I did find was interesting is that, um, and this ties back to my solution circle, uh, there are a couple people who openly uh, critiqued the E-Star program during that same talk. And so it seems FDA is becoming aware of some of the, the hiccups and pain points that people have with it. And I hope that they take that feedback and help refine the program. That's great. We have a very specific audience question. And NJ, I think this is targeted to you. So um, have you also discussed how clinical data and endpoints should be defined when a legacy device has an equivalent device that is now a similar device under MDR? Mm -hmm. where the legacy device has not yet been placed on the market. Nancy, once again, what is the question? So equivalence was in play previously. It's not panning out under the MDR. And this legacy device wasn't placed in the EU market previously. And in such a case, how do you define endpoints? Is that the question? Correct. That is the question. Um. Man, we could we could go on for for half an hour after <laughs> for this. But but what what I would suggest is incorporate your previously equivalent device, right, the device with which you were claiming equivalence, into your state of the art section, and use data from that device to enable coming up with acceptance criteria for your endpoints. Uh, you know, your objectives translate into measurable endpoints, and you need acceptance criteria for the same. And I. I'm, the assumption I'm making here is that you're wondering how do you get credit for the clinical data on that other on that previously equivalent device? My suggestion would be to incorporate it into the state of the art so that all of that clinical data gets funneled into what will eventually be the acceptance criteria for your new device that you're presumably doing some kind of a clinical investigation for. If that does not answer your question, please send me an email and we can talk a little bit more. I actually had a very similar situation this week where, but we were looking at article 6110 and whether mm -hmm. it was a very simple device with well-defined performance criteria. Mm -hmm. Could it, you know, do you even need the clinical investigation in that point? So mm -hmm. interesting Six, stuff. 6110 is always interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> but let's talk about what are we seeing in clinical trials? So maybe Anika, do you want to start with this? Question. Yeah. yeah, I noticed there were a couple sessions that talked about clinical trials and there was an emphasis on diversity in clinical trials, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. Something we've been noticing in even with among my colleagues when we get deficiencies on certain um, submissions, FDA is asking about what's the diversity of the patient population. Um, they want to know if you've taken certain things into account, not just in terms of race and age, but also socioeconomic. Mm -hmm. um, diversity. And so it was really nice to see that that is something they're trying to emphasize and encourage uh, manufacturers to take into consideration. All right. I agree, Anika. I was at some of those sessions as well. And what stood out to me was uh, some of the creative ideas to enable that specifically with decentralized trials, like the idea of having study visits either at home or, um, you know, like corner pharmacy type stores as sites that are in neighborhoods and much more accessible to individuals. So I think that that's really encouraging and actually enabling like a much broader participation and even, um, you know, some things about that 
logistically become much more challenging, but it also just makes the ability to participate in trials much more feasible. So that was encouraging. I think we sometimes get questions around surveys and whether those are a clinical trial or not, or what clinical evidence they could support. Did you hear anything about surveys? There was a lot about uh, PMCS surveys and, and whether or not it's a clinical trial, definitely not. Um, and one of the points in the session I gave with, through some of the Q&A was actually like, what if I have uh, off-label information that, that my device is being used off-label and I want to monitor that through a survey, uh, it's definitely okay to do that so long as it's known to the respondent that that is indeed off-label. And then if the manufacturer decides to, um, to go for that indication, of course they need a clinical investigation to collect the data to show that. Um, so it's not like you can leverage data from a survey to then update a label. So, and that really just is dependent on so many factors, right? About um, what requirements from a clinical perspective, a research perspective um, are being addressed through that PMCF survey. Can I add one point real quick to Celeste, what you're saying? So, and Celeste, you used two very critical terms in there. One was clinical trial and one was clinical investigation, right? So the retrospective data collection efforts or in, you know, sometimes we refer to those as surveys, those are definitely not clinical trials, but Article 61 refers to clinical investigation and not clinical trial. And there are ways where you could position retrospective data collection efforts, you know, in combination with requirements around um, requirements specified in ISO 14.155-2020 to position those effectively as a clinical investigation. So there, are, there is a difference between clinical trial and investigation, and please bear in mind that Article 61 specifically calls out clinical investigation. So just, just wanted to point that out. Those little words make a big difference. Oh my God, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, one of the questions I get from people about going to the RAPS conferences, you know, I have a general understanding, but I really need specifics about my type of device. Am mm. I going to get that at the conference? And mm. Carlos, maybe from the IVD standpoint, can you speak to that? Yeah. So I that that's a very that's a very good question. Nancy. And I I don't think you get that specific advice on your type of device unless, for example, um. So if we look at wraps this year there was very little on on ivds which i'm biased but i was a little because i'm an ivd person i'm i was very surprised to see so little so i think out of they had i don't know 90 or almost 90 presentations in total including the the workshops and things like that and there were only five or six topics dedicated to the ivdr which is a, a bit a bit weird knowing how much of a leap the ivdr is and knowing the challenge and i talk to ivd clients on a day-to-day -day basis knowing the challenges they're all they're all facing so I've, i i was a little bit disappointed to see so little on on in vitro diagnostics so the only topic out of uh, all of the ivd topics that i would say could apply to a specific type of device was a session on uh, companion uh, diagnostics, for example. But the rest of it was all very general. So there were no solutions for you know, individual types, uh, types of devices. So I think if you think of, of the IVDR, we are now two years on since the first uh, IVDR 
certificates were issued. So there's been a number of lessons learned on clinical evidence, on post-market performance follow-up, on notified body findings, and none of that was, you know, was very little discussed in the conference. So there was, I don't think IVDs were represented appropriately this year uh, at RAPS. And it was clear that from some of the audience questions, uh, there's still a lot of confusion out there on legacy devices, on the differences between legacy devices versus old devices, on the, the types of data that are required for legacy devices that are now transitioning to the IVDR. So I was hoping for a, a lot more, to be honest, when it comes to, to, to IVDs. And most importantly, we've seen for class D devices, so some of the highest risk devices, there's been a lot of scientific views published now by the expert panels of the European Commission, which are now part of VMA, and none of them was discussed. So all of that information is out there, and I was hoping to see some some discussions on on the scientific views that have been that are publicly available and that have been made on a number of uh, high risk, very high risk class D IVDs, and there was you know, complete lack of uh, representation of those types of devices in the conference. So, yeah, so I don't, I, answering your question, Nancy, I don't think if you're looking for answers specifically to your device, at least at this year's wraps, I don't think you would get those answers. Good feedback for anyone that attended that still hasn't filled out their surveys. <laughs> it's time to add some detail, and I think uh, Carlos just gave us a nice list to add of things we want to see next year. <laughs> How about on the device side? Was there a good range of topics or product types represented? I wouldn't say there were specific, like device-specific, a lot of device-specific presentations. However, the topics were still cross-cutting. So we are seeing, for example, they talked about um, AI and machine learning. And then again, like we mentioned earlier, clinical trials, these are things that impact um, a variety of devices. So I think there's a way to extract something, a little bit of what you need from, from each of the presentations that you're able to attend. Yeah, I don't think there was anything technology specific, but to Anika's point, right, there were, many concepts again from a reg perspective that would cross across device technologies like for example there was a lot of discussion around um, uh, the well-established technology topic right article 616b and then the whole standard of care type more clinically well-established as opposed to more in my mind 616b is more regulatory well-established right the exempt devices and then 2020-6 came up with a set of four bullet points saying, hey, if you meet these, uh, you could be considered. And the way the notified body are notified bodies are interpreting that is that, okay, that's more a standard of care device, but not every standard of care device can be considered well-established technology. And there are differences across notified bodies when it comes to interpretation of that. Now, this is something that could be applicable to many different technologies, right? Um, the other item uh, in terms of device type was the Annex 16, devices with no intended purpose. This one was interesting. Um, there was one lady who stood up and said, I am ready. I, as a manufacturer, I'm ready to make a submission. Notified bodies, you won't accept my submission. Why? What's going on? And when can I submit? And you're holding up business and you know all of that. And the notified body said, well, it's not much we can do because there isn't too much by way of common specifications that have been published. Without that, our hands are tight. Um, and 
that was it. And there was one interesting comment uh, that the chair of RAPS made, and, 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 and very honestly, this needs to be ratified through a lawyer. But it, the comment was that if common specifications are not there, you don't really fall under the purview of the MDR. This is not RQM Plus saying it, okay? This is what was commented on during the conference. And that you should be able to place your device on the market, especially if it doesn't have a medical claim. For the, for, the, for, the, for the part of it that has a medical claim associated with it, do get in touch with a lawyer if common specifications are not yet here as far as impeding your access to the EU market is concerned. I thought that was, that was an interesting comment, but if there is any Annex 16 manufacturer on this call, maybe that's something uh, that you could think along the lines of. Interesting. We do have a question. This goes back, I think, to clinical study and clinical investigation definition. Mm -hmm. um, you know, is it a study if it's a, a retro chart review that collects personal health information? So if you're collecting the PHI and it's a, it's a retrospective chart, is that a clinical study? So, okay, Celeste, I think you were ready to say something. Go on. Are, so you said they are collecting PHI, then I'm assuming it's also PHI. under an IRB? That detail's not provided, right. but I think okay, that's a safe we, assumption. You have to assume that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. I I would say yes, that that satisfies the requirement, but also, Jay, what do you think? Yeah, what I was going to say is, you know, just based on our experience over the last, what, year and a half in collecting retrospective data, we've been focusing on actual clinical outcomes, so we aren't really collecting personal health information per se. Again, I know that's debatable in terms of what aspects you're going after, but um, again, whether or not an IRB is there, that's that's another angle. But when it comes to, when, when you say clinical study, I'm not sure if you're referring to it as a clinical trial or a clinical investigation. My angle in stating that was that when you have a retrospective effort, <clears throat> yeah, when you have a retrospective effort and you're actually focused on clinical outcomes as opposed to patient specifics other than things like you know your general age bracket and if there are any comorbidities to go by we've been able to position those more on the investigation front we've never tried to go on the trial front because we know that's not what it is um, and we've not had any any significant pushback when it comes to those efforts up until now and one of the key requests actually from notified bodies in their talks at RAPS was to focus on those clinical outcomes, right? Yeah. And yeah. and it's not about the collection of PHI, it's, it's what are the outcomes for the device to demonstrate ongoing safety and performance? Absolutely, and, and, and let me add one thing real quick to that. Um, even if you think about it purely from an IFU standpoint, right? Many notified bodies are hitting up manufacturers saying, hey, you don't have a clinical benefit statement, right? Then when you have a clinical benefit statement, then they you know, take a step back and say, oh, by the way, you haven't specified what the actual device performance parameters for this device may be, right? So they're looking, so, so they're looking at it as more of a three-step process. They're looking at it in terms of a specification of device performance parameters. It could be technical, characteristics or it could be functional characteristics. It just needs to be those performance parameters that have the maximum influence on the clinical effect of your device. Think intended benefit, uh, intended purpose, right? And that stepping on to what is the eventual clinical benefit from the patient perspective. Your device may be able to, you know, go through tortuous anatomy and do whatever, 
but that doesn't double up as patient benefit. From a patient benefit perspective, they're looking at it in terms of, hey, is it is it providing pain relief? Is it providing uh, symptom relief? Is it providing improvement in quality of life? So there is the device performance aspect as well as the clinical benefit aspect, and that's where collecting clinical outcomes data becomes so important, whether or not your effort is prospective or retrospective. So one of the things that I find interesting at RAMPS is the questions coming from manufacturers that are attending the sessions. So mm -hmm. I guess what were your takeaways is what's on people's minds? What's on what's bothering manufacturers right now? Ooh, the number. Time. Yeah, exactly. And I heard a lot of resourcing earlier in our conversation being a concern. That is definitely one. The, you know, the other thing this has been an age-old issue. It's just coming to the fore more and more now. There are there are you know that many more requirements in the EU. There is a little bit of variability in the type of feedback slash questions that you get from reviewers, even sometimes within the same notified body. And you know, so there's intra-notified body variability in reviews. Uh, there is inter-notified body variability in review for sure. Like for example, uh, one example that I'm dealing with right now, right? GMED wants very specific um representation of what device performance parameters are on the ifu they want a very specific sometimes quantified uh statement around clinical benefits on the ifu you may or may not see that always from a bsi notified body reviewer or from a bsi reviewer or a tv reviewer but gmed's been very very consistent and it, and some of these questions also depend on when these submissions were made because that has an impact on when they get picked up by reviewers but by and large, there is some variability, which is to be expected because we're we're not yet in the pragmatic phase of the MDR, like I like to think of it as. Um, but variability is another one of the concerns. And one of the sessions, there is interesting discussion afterwards about a manufacturer struggling with deficiencies um, between their MDR or MDD and MDR oh, yeah. submission that had kind of spanned multiple years, and so. You know, they had deficiencies under MDD that are addressed under MDR, but they're still having to address them in the MDD audit. So it's kind of an interesting discussion about um, is this even being very pragmatic or how can we become more efficient about this? So that was interesting. Right. right. Interesting. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit, talk about digital health. That's typically a hot topic at regulatory conferences. What's new? Technology is changing probably faster than the regulations here. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so this was the key topic of, uh, or the keynote uh, talk on Sunday of the conference and um, very interesting panel about use of AI and digital health. Um, some really unique applications from uh, re reducing anxiety, pain management, training for surgical procedures, um, customized implants through additive manufacturing. Uh, so it was a great panel giving a very broad perspective of, of a variety of applications and of AI and digital health. Yeah, and to add to what Celestia shared, um, they also shared their experience with how different regulatory authorities are responding to AI and machine learning and devices. I know for FDA in particular, that's been an, a sensitive area for some of our clients. We're trying to figure out, um, you know, does the software have to be locked completely and how do we navigate that? I know FDA wants to see de novos for certain types of software. 
And it was good to hear feedback from those who submitted, you know, multiple um, software-based devices and how to navigate those AI machine learning challenges. Interesting. How about companion diagnostics? Carlos, you mentioned those earlier. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there was, a, there was actually a really nice session that um, brought pharma, uh, the diagnostics partner and the European Medicines Agency uh, together to look at uh, a little bit at the global landscape of uh, companion diagnostics. So I think one of the one of the key things where they were just trying to provide a, an overview of what are the, the differences between uh, different jurisdictions. Um, and what I you know one of the things that I've learned and I didn't know that is that um, uh, companion diagnostic in the US. Um, they're typically class three. They go through a pre-market authorization, and the PMA usually costs, you know, in excess of three hundred thousand uh, US dollars. Uh, if we look at Europe, for example, um, the cost is very different. So, companion diagnostics are class uh, classes C typically, and an application to your notified body plus conformity assessment costs are on average potentially around 50k, um, that's euros. And then you add some European EMA fees, which I think they will cost anything between 40 and 50. And we're, to we're talking about the total of 100,000 for a companion diagnostics uh, coming to the market. So three times cheaper than it would be uh, for that same companion diagnostic to, to be uh, placed in the market in the US. So I think one of the other key differences between the FDA uh, and Europe is that for if you're trying to put a companion diagnostic in the US, uh, there you've got multiple opportunities to communicate with the FDA, and you can do that through uh, during the pre-submission meetings, during development, during clinical trial type of activities, or even during the drug uh, application. Uh, and for the US, you're looking at least of uh, one third of clinical data needs to come from US sites. So in Europe, on the other hand, the process is still very new. As, as everyone is aware, uh, companion diagnostics are being uh, regulated for the very first time uh, under the, the, the IVDR. And it's a new process for both notified bodies and um, European Medicines Agency. There is the possibility of, um, of pre-meetings with um, the notified body and the EMA. But they will need to be requested. So if, if you're a manufacturer, you will need to talk to your notified body, request that the notified body sets up a meeting with the EMA. But the meeting is, uh, as opposed to what the FDA does, the meeting is only to align on timelines of companion diagnostic and drug approval. So it's not uh, to provide any sort of technical advice or to set expectations for the testing that uh, needs to be to be conducted. And just my last point was one of, one of the, the audience members, they've asked the question on, um, so they were from a, a diagnostics partner and they were asking if um, requesting a meeting with the European Medicines Agency during the assessment and the consultation of companion diagnostics, whether they should or they could bring their pharma partner, so you know, the developer of the of the drug that goes along with that companion diagnostic to the table for that discussion with the EMA. And the representative of the EMA that was in the panel, they've confirmed that yes, and that's actually best practice because what the European Medicines Agency is looking for in Europe is for the suitability of that drug for that companion diagnostic. So, sorry, the suitability of the companion diagnostic for the administration of the drug. And therefore, 
they're coming from the pharma angle. So it's very important to have the pharma partner in those pre-submission meetings with the EMA as well. So not only the companion diagnostics partner. So those were some of the, the key learnings in companion diagnostics. But it was quite an interesting talk for sure. Uh, and like I said before, it was one of the only ones really focused on a you know a certain type of device. Oh wrap it up with just a couple more questions the first one and we'll go around is did you hear any conflicting advice or things that you did not agree with <laughs> so let's let's you know set the record straight here what what should people really take away <laughs> Anika, we're all speechless yeah. <laughs> you agreed with everything. Everybody was said everything perfectly there. That's impressive. <laughs> um, my only critique was again during that health authority forum with FDA. I know that they shared how there would be an incentive for um, FDA if they hit certain goals. And my concern has always been, well, how does this impact reviewers and does this create added stress for them that would then impact how they review? Um, our devices. So I'm very curious what the domino effect of that may be. Interesting. Celeste? This is a tough one, Nancy. Um, I think maybe just some nuanced differences with uh, PMCS surveys is what we're still seeing, right? Like how detailed do you really need to go? How uh, detailed, like Jay and Jay's session, um, phenomenal slides about uh, determining the endpoints and the acceptance criteria and then the sample size, right? All of those steps being followed. I don't know if it's something that I disagree with, but maybe like manufacturers still don't seem to be there or questioning, right? Like, do they really need to go to that level of detail? And um, maybe just needing support in that, right? Because it's a very new process. It's not easy to pull off from a logistics perspective. So um, maybe it's just seeing that there's still a lot of work to be done um, in aligning on approaches for PMCF. Yeah, Celeste, I, you know, before I forget, I just wanted to add something to what you just said. If there are manufacturers out there wondering if they really need to go to that nth degree to make sure that you have sufficient quantity and quality. I'll say, you know what, don't listen to us. Take a look at the latest expert panel uh, opinion that was published on, I think it was a tricuspid valve repair system or a replacement system or, or maybe the mitral equivalent. And you can see to the extent to which they chewed apart one part of their indication. Uh, it was basically, it was quite the ding against the notified body um, in terms of saying you should have really caught this. And that will give you a really good idea of how serious Europe is, both about sufficient quantity and quality and the importance of outcomes related data to all aspects of the indication, right? So don't listen to us, take a look at that expert panel uh, publication. It's, it's uh, I think it came out last month, something like that. Um, so where the, can I find that, Jay? You don't have to ooh, ask the question. Uh, man, I... Really, all it's what's easiest is just look for expert panel opinion in EU, and it'll take you to the site which will list out pretty much every expert panel that has been published. And I'm saying that because I don't remember the exact link at this point. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. We, <laughs> so, we can follow up. If anybody wants that, just let us know. <laughs> sure, sure. 
The, a couple of things that I wanted to add. One thing that confuses me when I hear it is, you know, we have a, for SSCP, there is that whole big guidance document that lists out so many things and reviewers basically go line by line to see if everything's in there. Now, when you try and satisfy all of that, your SSCP becomes really long. It's no longer a summary, right? It's, it's more an expanded version of, in some cases, what you have in your CER. So that to me is a little jarring when I hear that, you know, it, it needs to be a lot shorter. Um, I, think, I think everybody, including us, can do a better job in trying to be succinct. And that's probably the key message there. Same thing with the CER, right? We want, it's probably more applicable on the IVD side than the MDR side in terms of, you know, don't have a CER 200 pages long. Pretty much every CER that I've seen as a reviewer is way more than 200 pages long, and it still generates a lot of questions. So that to me is a little iffy. Um, secondly, every now and then we hear reviewers asking for an entire summary of all the VNV data in the CER. That can be a lot of pages, and I'm not really sure how much value added that is. So there's, there's some there's some you know discrepancy there. Um, the one last thing I wanted to point out is um, you know talking to people from the notified body who are involved with team MB and so on and so forth, it doesn't seem like the May 2024 timeline is going to be pushed, right? And and some of the arguments against that is, okay, the US has four certain types of, you know, cervical spinal implants, the EU has 47. So yeah, we you could, could probably do it less than 47, right? That's that's one argument. Um, but I don't know if that, that applies to every other kind of device out there. But they are considering what way, shape, or form uh, Article 97, item number three, could take. And there are, at this point, I think three member states who are individually looking at what their requirements would be in case a managed non-compliance was to become a reality, for at least for certain types of devices. So that's, that's one thing that discussions are ongoing. And then in light of MDCG 2022-11 and-14, I think the commission excuse me, the commission has asked notified bodies to get together and put forth their proposal in terms of how they would deal with the situation. And one very interesting comment was that I hope notified bodies won't remain private about what their suggestion to the commission would be, because then it could easily get brushed aside and the finger will be pointed back at the notified body saying, hey, we, we asked you guys what you'd like to do and we never heard from you. So Team NB is getting together to figure out, you know, what that should look like. Uh, so plenty in the works, um, just remains to be seen what it's going to look like as we get closer to 2024. That said, so I think there's... So there's some hope there, right? I hear a, just a pinch of hope in there. Yeah, I've been hoping for that PSUR guidance for a couple of years now. <laughs> I'm anyway. an optimist, so I'm going to go there. We're kind of running out of time here. So go ahead and finish your thought, Jay or Carlos. Uh, if you want I'm, to jump I'm good. I'm good. I think everybody's tired of hearing from me by now anyway. So, yeah. <laughs> Carlos, anything to add? No, I think, I think we're good. I think we're at a good point to close the, the show and I'll see if that's okay. Yeah. The only question I have to ask is where's next year's conference going to be? Where are we all going next year? Montreal. Montreal. Okay. Yeah. Steve, with that, I'll turn it back over to you. I want to go to Montreal too. That was great. Thanks uh, for being part of today's show, everybody. Uh, we appreciate your time and questions. Uh, thank you to our panelists and moderator as well. I know I speak for all of us when we say we're really happy to be back. Um, we'll follow up via email with the recording of today's panel by tomorrow. 
And we'll also upload this episode to our Device Advice podcast by early next week. If you're not yet subscribed to our podcast uh, and feel so inclined, we encourage you to search RQM Plus Device Advice on whatever podcast platform you use. Uh, we should turn up. In terms of what's coming up, our next live show and webinar are both focused on medical device software. So three weeks from now on October 13th, we'll be conducting a panel discussion, uh, just like today's, on medical device software, top deficiencies and requests for additional info from FDA and notified bodies. Uh, Nancy, will be, Nancy will be one of the panelists, along with Allison Komiyama and Kevin Goh, and I shared a registration link to that session earlier in the webinar chat. And that panel will serve as somewhat of the lead-in to what will definitely be an information-packed webinar on November 8th. So common FDA and notified body software deficiencies and how to avoid them. Uh, like the live show, I shared a registration link in the webinar chat. And as usual, you can find both of these events in our knowledge center at rqmplus.com. Uh, and if I were to ask our audience a favor, if you don't work with software, but have colleagues or peers that do, uh, these are pretty great learning opportunities to share with them. So just simply for your consideration there. Uh, lastly, we encourage you to follow us on LinkedIn. If you spend time there, we share much of the content we have in our knowledge center with the addition of career opportunities and upcoming events. Uh, you can find us by clicking the link I shared in the chat, or of course, by searching RQM Plus on LinkedIn. And we also, you may have noticed that we shared links to the LinkedIn profiles of the individuals from today's panel. So please feel free to reach out and connect with them as well. So that's it for today. We're very grateful you're here uh, for your attendance and hope you enjoy the rest of your week. Thanks everybody. Have a good day, everyone. Take care. Bye. Thanks everyone. Bye.